When I was seven years old, I watched as a police officer carted my father out of the house and took him away. My dad had severe bipolar disorder and was experiencing what I now know to be an episode. What I learned over the next 40 years that my dad was alive is that he could foster a loving relationship with me despite not ever mastering his recurrent episodes. The answers to the rest of my many questions about my father's illness were nowhere to be found. I became a psychiatrist to find answers and to help address what my dad, my family, and so many others have experienced in their journeys with mental illness. But I learned even more by talking with thousands of people living with mental health conditions. And through these conversations discovered a new set of experts, people with mental illness, who can help others live with these conditions. That was Ken Duckworth reading from his first opinion essay, Unseen Mental Health Experts, People with Mental Illness. In it, he makes the case that individuals who have lived with mental health conditions and their family members are an untapped source of wisdom on how to build a life and thrive while living with mental health conditions. Ken's a psychiatrist, the chief medical officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI, and author of the newly published book, you Are Not Alone, the NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health, with advice from experts and wisdom from real people and families. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Eric Edwards, President and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss expanded capabilities for U.S.-based pharmaceutical development and manufacturing in the U.S. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine how essential medicines are developed and manufactured. This December, we're opening our new laboratory at the Advanced Pharmaceutical Development Center in Richmond, Virginia. This will enhance our CDMO service offerings for pharma and biopharma customers, including advanced capabilities for small molecule API development with the goal of helping our customers manufacture higher quality, lower cost medicines that make it to market faster. Opening our new state-of-the-art facilities is a key milestone in our efforts to return pharmaceutical manufacturing to the United States and end essential medicine shortages once and for all. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's P-H-L-O-W-U-S-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. It's great to talk with you. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. You know, the story that you read in the opening, was that the first time you were aware your father was having problems with his mental health? Yeah. So the, the tricky thing is my dad was loving and fun. My cousins used to ask me how I got the winning delightful one. And the truth <laughs> is, in addition to this personality, uh, which was charismatic, generous, playful, he became quite ill and was probably hospitalized 25 times in the course of his life. He would become psychotic, manic. He had the full bipolar one classic mental health condition. Back in the day, 70s and 80s, nobody talked about this. 
So I had to make sense of it by becoming a psychiatrist. So, you know, there's no doctors in my family. I wasn't particularly interested in science or math. I did it because I wanted to understand how to help him and what the heck this was. So uh, it's no surprise that I ended up interested in storytelling and people's experience because I truly was a sociology kid who decided to become a doctor. So did your family get any help with understanding what was going on with your dad? My family never figured any of this out. And my family was a good, loving, ordinary, middle-class American family. And so I think there was just so much shame and isolation in our family. It really prevented meaningful conversation about this. This is a medical condition. For some reason, people can talk about their heart disease and cancer. We can't still talk about a lot of mental health conditions. So my family never really figured this out. I gave it my best effort. But, you know, people and the culture they grow up in is very powerful. And I think my parents and my siblings who were busy with their own young families, I'm the baby by about a decade in my family of origin. You know, I think they had made the decision we're going to, you know, just press through this and never talk about it. So my dad was a deacon at church and he's uh, demoted to counting the money in the basement after a manic episode, this kind of thing that happened to them. So you would think we would talk to the minister or whatever. Uh, a fun story about the way my dad would handle this. We're pulling up to church one Sunday and he's driving a Cadillac, which he got himself for his retirement present. He had driven a Ford Escort before and they said, Joe, nice car. And he said, you know, it's not all bad being the guy who counts the money. <laughs> and so what you realize is he was trying to laugh off all of it. And that was the strategy. He was going to die on that strategy. And he did, in fact, die having never really taken this up. So I was interested in a book where real people use their names and share what they learned to address this core problem of isolation, which I think is still killing a lot of Americans and delaying a lot of help seeking. Yeah, you wrote that you had really nowhere to turn from information. Medical tech books were too dense. Memoirs didn't really do it for you. Did you ever find anything? No, but I did write it. So how fun is that? So, you know, I'd go to Brookline Booksmith very happily and there'd be 100 memoirs. But I don't identify myself as a celebrity. And I wrote chapters for textbooks, uh, Patrick, and I know no one reads them because no one ever said, can that chapter on involving the family was so fantastic. It was a bodice ripper. I can't wait to read it again. There's none of that. Nobody reads textbooks. They're not real people. And memoirs are great. I'm not against memoirs, but they're not practically applicable. I wanted to know how do people transcend addiction? How do people learn to talk in their own families? What strategies did people teach each other? that doctors don't know anything about. One is what a service dog can do for someone. I don't think any psychiatrist has ever been trained in the power of a service dog. So in interviewing 130 people, I had one man talk about how a dog regulated his bipolar disorder and the dog's name Coda, which is the piece that finishes a music, of course, uh, he completes him. And says, basically, nice. Coda wakes up in the morning. Coda gets out for a walk. I go out for a walk. Coda eats. I eat. Coda walks again. I walk. Coda goes to bed. I go to bed. That dog is regulating this man. I was never taught about that in psychiatry. Then I met a woman who was sexually assaulted in the military. And she had a service dog who was acutely attuned to keeping men away from her. And the huh. dog would pick up on emotion. And again, I was interested in the wisdom of real people. I was never taught anything about dogs in my psychiatric training right down the street at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center. And nobody ever taught me that. Like, these are other tools. I'm not against treatment. 
I like doctors. I like psychotherapy. I like medicines. I like it all. But it's interesting. I feel like there was this whole pool of untapped wisdom that for some reason we've left on the sidelines. You mentioned the paper plates example in the Mm. essay, which I thought was really interesting and cool. So uh, this woman goes to a uh, peer support group and she has young kids and she can't figure out how to run her own life. Her mood symptoms are pretty strong. She told me she did not have them under control. She has young kids and she looks at the kitchen sink and there's plates six feet high. And she goes to a support group and she says, I can't handle my life. It's either my kitchen or my kids. And a woman said two words to her that changed her life paper plates. (laughs) Now, there's never been a psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker in the history of American mental health who would say to a person who was overwhelmed with their life, have you considered paper plates? Because it's not part of clinical training. That is to say, there's wisdom in real people. She learned that from another person. And she said, it transformed my life. I gave up on running a kitchen. I gave up on cooking. I did takeout for seven years. She raised wonderful kids. She didn't lose her kids to social services, right? She hung on, she focused on her kids. When her kids grew up and left, she started to work on the kitchen again. Then she went back to plates. It's again, something that a mental health practitioner would not tell you to think about. You know, you mentioned earlier about sort of the physician mindset. Is yes. it, it, It's easy for experts of any kind, not just physicians, experts of any kind to think, I know best, or I certainly know more than you do. Yes, Did you have to break out of that mindset or was that, did you already understand lived experience from the get-go? I think because I grew up with a dad who had uh, a beautiful heart and a very bad mental health condition, it was obvious to me that the lived experience, if you were to look at my DNA, you know, I'm more lived experience NAMI doc than I am anything else. So this was the only natural book for me to write. Um, I've always been impressed at how much people teach each other. And uh, doctors are wonderful people, but many of them haven't had the, quote, benefit, end quote, of having this lived experience misadventure that I had. And I'm grateful that, you know, there was a market for it. Publishers wanted this book and that people were willing to share their story to help other people. Patrick, we have a troubled world we live in. Altruism is alive and well. One person after another said, if my experience, no matter what it was, helps another person, it was all worth it. You wrote or you've mentioned that without objective blood tests or blood pressure cuffs that you can sort of easily diagnose other diseases with. It's a challenge to diagnose mental illness because it can ebb and flow. How does that make life difficult for clinicians like yourself and for people with mental illness? Without biological markers, it's hard to know what you're dealing with. So it's all syndrome description. It's good to be, it's good to be honest about that. And because we don't really understand how the meds work, we have to be honest about that too. We do know that they work most of the time for most people. So it's not like a zero sum game. I was at a game in Philadelphia where my family was originally from. I went back to visit my family in Philly after my dad got transferred. He lost his job after that manic episode. When I was seven, we moved to Detroit. So I went back to Philly and I was at a Phillies game and my nephew's best friend uh, was a leader in anesthesia. And he said, Ken, I want you to know something. And I said, what's that? 
He said, we don't know how propofol works on the brain either. You don't <laughs> have to feel bad about psychiatry. We don't understand the brain, Ken. It's much bigger than psychiatry. He says, so any, any of your rumblings internally that you feel, you know, we're not a real medical specialty, we, we put people to sleep every day. We don't know how propofol works. And he said, I just want you to know that. So it was a great moment in my little career. I was like, hey, the brain is actually harder than the heart. Hmm. And that's just going to be the way it is. And if you can accept that. Now, we do need to keep working for biomarkers. We're not there yet. We have not succeeded. But when you think about the 100 million neurons in the brain and the many times more connections there are in the brain, it's easy to see why we don't know so much. Well, that lack of knowledge also kind of leaks over into treatment. I mean, we still don't know a lot about how antidepressants actually work. We do not, but we do know that they usually work for most people. Hmm. So, you know, you just have to accept that. There was a brief period of time for antibiotics that we observed that they work, but we didn't know how. Unfortunately, we're just going to be in that for decades. You know, how lithium, which made a big difference in my dad's life when he took it, works is mostly theoretical. It's a tool. Hmm. And we know that it works. Does it have something to do with stabilizing calcium membranes? Maybe. But the truth is we don't know. And I think it's just important to be honest about the fact, you know, that the syndromes are symptom described so that a social worker in, uh, you know, Ann Arbor and a psychologist on Cape Cod will come up with the same thing. Oh, this is major depression. But are these things valid on a biological level? We don't know. The truth is there's a lot we don't know. And I just think it's important to be honest about that. So I try to be quite honest about that in the book because I don't want people to think that we know more than we do. But this also raises the interesting specter of if you've lived with something for 20 years, and I'm going to call it bipolar disorder, even though it's not a perfectly described biological syndrome, you too are an expert. If you learned that certain stresses, certain inputs, certain um, kinds of seasonality have impacted you, you've learned something that you could teach another person. And I'm not against traditional experts. I like traditional experts. I'm just interested in the both end. How did you get involved with NAMI? Uh, so I volunteered for years and then they heard me give a lecture at the Harvard Medical School. I had cancer when I was a resident and I was treated like a prince. And you're at the Beth Israel, it's brightly lit. All the staff are lovely and well compensated. And there's all these posters on the wall. This would have been back in the like Bruce Hurst days. I mean, we're way back for Red Sox lore, right? 89, 90, Mike Greenwell. They'd be on big posters. Ken, you are a hero. Hmm. You have cancer. You are a hero. And I would visit my father at a state hospital that was dark and dingy. And the staff wasn't well compensated. And if there was a, you know, a poster board on the wall, it would say, pretend you were never here. Wow. So I gave a lecture comparing, I had a life-threatening, good status illness when I was 29 years old. And my father had a low status, potentially lethal illness throughout his life, starting at age 17. And, but he had an episode probably in his mid and late 20s, because he had them every two to three years. And so why is it as a society that we've created these conditions where one is a heroic task that people bring casseroles, and one is something to be ashamed of. I gave that lecture at the Harvard Medical School. Somebody at NAMI heard about it, and the president of National NAMI flew up to Boston, took me out to lunch, and said, Ken, you should get involved with us. So I became a volunteer, and then it was only a matter of time before I uh, became their doc. 
You know, people often ask me, what's your favorite podcast episode or what's your favorite first opinion essay? Mm. And so, and I always say they're all my children. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you the same question and you may have a similar response. Yeah. Was there one really powerful um, story or realization that you can share with us? There were two stories that I can't pick one, right? Uh, there are two stories. One man had overdosed three times, was homeless and psychotic, and he made a decision to participate in a NAMI class called In Our Own Voice, where he shared his story with other people. And he realized that maybe his story could benefit another person. This is the beauty of altruism, hmm. like that if you're giving to someone else, which is why people are also experts. So he said, well, I went through this. Here's what I did. He said on NAMI uh, walks, we have thousands of walks across the country. We raise millions of dollars in service of, as in cancer. And he becomes a superhero, NAMI man. And he said, you know, there's Tinkerbell and Robin Hood. They have nothing to do with mental health. We need our own superhero. So he develops a costume, NAMI man. It's a full-fledged <laughs> costume, mask, cape, <laughs> the whole thing. And he goes into hospitals and he talks to kids. And the kids say, do you kill bad guys? And he takes his mask off. He says, no, I'm just like you and me. We're all getting help. You're a superhero, too. Hmm. I crush stigma. I talk about what happened to me. And so can you. That's a beautiful story. I mean, this man was facing multiple near-death experiences and has become kind of a national treasure. You've described the mental health system in the United States and maybe system, maybe too kind a word for it, as chaotic. From the point of view of somebody with a mental illness, what does that system look like? Yeah, so it's all local. It's all fragmented. So I became the commissioner of mental health to try to straighten it out, right? In my uh, moment, brief moment of arrogance, I'm like, okay, well, if I became the commissioner, I could straight, straighten it out. On the first day that I was in the office, I hadn't even finished my Dunkin' Donuts. They handed out an org chart, which eliminated the Department of Mental Health. And I thought, <laughs> this is how you get to this incredible chaotic now, I worked and solved it. We didn't close the Department of Mental Health. But in New Hampshire, they had the same budget crisis in Vermont, in New York, in Rhode Island. And they were making different cuts. Do you know what I mean? So the idea is we all had it. We all were broke. This would happen to be the 2003 recession. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it recurs with each recession, right? So they make cuts in you know care, but they might make different cuts. They might cut housing in one state. They might take away the dental benefit for Medicaid in another state. They might make Medicaid eligibility harder. So the idea is it's all local. You can't count on anything that isn't local. So if you have good health insurance, you should hang on to it. If you have Medicaid, you'd be wise to be in a state that has good Medicaid. Mm. Fortunately, Massachusetts has that. But you move to another state. There are many states that have not done Medicaid expansion. There's a lot of people that are uninsured. We're still running about 35, 30 million people with no insurance at all. So to them, the whole system, you know, is completely inaccessible unless you have the good luck to find a place that will treat you for free. So the system in quotation marks doesn't exist. It's a melange of chaotic funding streams that are in continuous transition. So, I mean, it's really very humbling. And I have to be honest about that, too. So it sounds like a dark story. We don't know how the meds work. Diagnosis is, uh, you know, a descriptive. The system couldn't be more fragmented and chaotic. And yet the truth is that people still get better. Hmm. And a lot of them are in this book. 
and they find ways. Is it love? Is it faith? Is it lithium? Is it a certain kind of psychotherapy? Is it giving to others? It's different for different people. And all the uncertainties are true, but people cared about sharing their story. There's people from 11 races and ethnicities. I had a woman from the Punjab community say, I've never seen a book with anyone from the Punjab community. I want you to use my middle name because that's a sing- signal to people that that's where I'm from. Oh, interesting. So she wanted, she said, I've never been represented in a book. I've never seen a book with anybody from my community around mental health. So it's very important to me that you use my middle name, which is given to women from that particular geographic area. Hmm. So it's very interesting to me. People wanted to do this to change the world that they're in, whether it's the church that they're in, the community that they're in, the culture that they're in. So we just sold 100 books in Iowa, and I met an adorable couple in Iowa who figured out, in spite of the husband's severe depression, history of homelessness, suicidality, how to work together as a loving couple. And they have kind of an early warning system where if he has one night of poor sleep, it's no problem. But if he has two nights of sleep, he texts Peggy and he said, I'm having a bad brain day. Hmm. And she says, that's not an emergency, but I got to pay attention. Marty, what's going on? Do we have to you know, call the doctor? Do we have to do things? That happened to just be uh, two days ago in Iowa. And the idea is that couples can problem solve, work things out, anticipate, relapse. A lot of these conditions are relapsing. So, you know, you can learn things. I think people tend to feel hopeless or helpless about it. Truth is, you can relapse with these conditions, but if you have knowledge about what the early symptoms are, you can jump on it. And he says, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which happens to be the intervention, it's magnet therapy. You put magnets on the outside of your skull. I know it sounds pretty sci-fi, but it's FDA approved (laughs) for major depression. He says, TMS is great, but without the love of Peggy, I have no chance at all. Peggy's the one who got me to TMS. Peggy's the one who drags me out of bed when I'm super depressed and I don't want to live anymore. Says, we're going, big guy, we're going. And, you know, she gets him in the car and he couldn't be more loving and appreciative of her. You know, you ended your first opinion like this. I'm going to quote here. Yeah. If you've dealt with mental illness as an individual or a family member, Share your experience in places that feel safe because you never know who is listening and who it might help. It sounds like we need a story core on mental illness and mental health. I would love, Patrick, for you to use your many connections and power to have a story core on conversations around mental health. (laughs) Let's see what we can do. Ken, thanks so much for the work you're doing and for talking with me today as we hurdle toward Thanksgiving 2020. Yes, I want to thank you, Patrick, for having me. And thanks for taking an interest in this novel approach. We don't have enough mental health practitioners, so why don't we learn from each other? Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. This is the last one for this season. I'm sad. I'm grateful, as always, to Teresa Gaffney, our producer extraordinaire, and to Alyssa Ambrose, our senior producer. Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. 
And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead. Thank you.